Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Fedhead, my brand new podcast with me, your host, Robert Ralph Federson. Fedhead is brought to you by the fine folks at Wise Guys Discount Liquors. Make sure to visit the brand new Wise Guys Discount Liquors located at 2154 West Morthland Drive in beautiful Valparaiso, Indiana. And go see my friend Sam, the beer dealer. Tell him Robert Ralph Federson sent you from the Fedhead Podcast. So hanging out with Terry Ann here today. How are you, Terry Ann? I am fabulous. We are calling and interviewing Jake Labatz, singer-songwriter, actor, and also live theater performer as well. He's done a lot of cool stuff, and uh, he has a brand new record out called They're Coming For Me. So we're going to give Jake Labatz a phone call and say hello to Jake and uh, see what he has been up to. Let's give him a call. T, what do you say? I'm ready. Come on now. Here we go. Let's dial Jake. I'm not going to tell you guys the number. All right, but we're calling Jake Labatz, and he is just an incredible singer, songwriter. I love his work. And here we go. Come on now. It's Jake Terry. Here we go. Mr. Jake. Hey, Robert. Mr. Jake Labatz, how are you? Man, I'm doing good. How are you? We are doing good over here. I've got Terry Ann with me over here. Hi, Jake. Hi, Hi, Terry Ann. How are you? Good, thanks. Are you two in Wisconsin? We are not. No, but we're we're gonna be in Wisconsin in January. We're gonna come up and and you know I told you the the crazy story. <laughs> that's that's true. Um, we're gonna go check out a, a home that is um, you know being left to us. So we're gonna just go check it out and uh, and, and see what it's all about. Have you been to uh, to Fountain City, Wisconsin? You know I I've certainly seen the name. It's got a compelling name, doesn't it? It does. It sounds magical. It really does. It sounds like, I don't know what, it's going to be a fountain of youth or it's going to be a, a city that's just uh, has a gushing of wonderful energy coming up from the depths or something. Well, I, I hope so, because we could use it, Jake. That's that's for sure. <laughs> and we'll I hear keep it you, secret, man. too. It'll be our little place. <laughs> <laughs> so now you have moved to the great state of Minnesota. That's right. Yeah, I've been here about a month. I'm in Winona in southeast Minnesota, right on the Mississippi River, just across from Wisconsin. And I can walk to Wisconsin in about 20 minutes from where I live. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. Uh, there's something about the Mississippi River that is mesmerizing to me. Um, I love being by water. And uh, Terry and I played a little town. I don't know if you've heard of it. A New Boston, Illinois. Have you heard of that town? New Boston, Illinois. I don't know if I have. You've played a lot of places. So I thought maybe you might have heard of this little town. But it's where Route 17 ends. And it's right on the Mississippi. So it's like a block away from the Mississippi River. There's a little place called the Red Barn. And uh, you know, Terry and I played it uh, a, a while back now, probably a couple of years ago. And it was just great. We, uh, in between sets, we ran down to the river and just hung out at the Mississippi and then went back in and, and played the, uh, the, the Red Barn in New Boston. That sounds great, man. You're making me feel nostalgic for visiting all those cool old river towns. 
Well, I mean, you have done a ton of touring, and uh, and you play everything from bars to churches to tattoo parlors, and um, I I love that because I I met you. Well, I met you a long time ago, but I officially met you at Lagunitas Brewing Company uh, when Terry Ann and I came out to see you. And um, after uh, talking with you and, and exploring what you do, you know, we play at breweries. That's pretty much like our thing. And you've carved out your own niche with uh, playing tattoo parlors. And how did you what made you think of that? I'm going to go play at tattoo parlors and name like my tour like the tattoo america tour or, or wherever you're you're playing in this earth well i i guess it, it it happened this way you know i i don't know if there is uh just like a typical route to success in the music industry probably really not maybe there was at one time but that's gone um <laughs> that's probably gone and uh, when I, you know, I've been playing music since I was in my early 20s. I've been, you know, doing it for, for nickels and dimes here and there. Um, but like the I, song, nickels and dimes. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but I was also, I had a problem with drugs. I was a heroin addict. And so I was, I was sort of bound to whatever place I was living in. Yeah. by the shackles of addiction and also my just insecurity and not knowing really how to just kind of step out into the world in a way. And so wherever I lived, I lived in Chicago and I played all around town, you know, all the time. And then when I oh, moved yeah. to Los Angeles, I did the same thing. I just, I played local to make a living. I just play four or five gigs a week playing around town, whatever I could do. And I started getting like email came out, like computers were happening. I got clean from drugs in 1999 and Fantastic. around that time, you know, like that's right when computers were starting to happen in yeah. a big way and, you know, email and all that stuff. And within the next couple of years, I, I was getting emails from people. I had a website and people could find me and they said, Hey man, you know, I, I heard this song of yours somewhere, or I saw you, I had done a movie by that point. I'd done my first movie acting and I got fan mail from that, just a little bit of mail. But, you know, people would say, why don't you come and play, uh, you know, in uh, in Muncie, Indiana? Or why don't you come play in uh, Schenectady or something? <laughs> yeah, right? Schenectady. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, Muncie's where Terry went to college. So I, I like that oh, reference. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I used to live in, in uh, Gary, too. So I, I remember just seeing Muncie all the time. That name just always caught my attention. Um, so I... Uh, you know, I, I felt like, gosh, these people are asking me, why don't I come play in their town? And so I, I started to look into it. What does it take? Like, I got a, I, ha, I own a car. Yeah. And I own a, I own an instrument. Like, what, what do I got to do here? And uh, I, I called a couple places. Like, hey, I want to come play there. And they're like, well, how many people are going to come? How much? How much beer right? are we going to sell? Yes, exactly. Yes, no doubt. Okay. And that was like, I kind of, in Chicago, when I played at places, I didn't really think about that stuff. I would just walk into a bar with my guitar and I would say, hey, I want to play for whoever runs this place. And I would just see if I could get their ear and just play for them and sure. just say, look, why don't you just give me a shot? Let me play here you know, once a week or a couple of times a month or something. And that kind of worked for me, just that boldness. I just walk in, play for somebody and, you know, catch a gig. And sometimes, you know, they they give me uh, like some guarantee of a little bit of money or I have a tip jar or both or whatever. Yeah. 
But for the road, you know, it's different. It's hard, you know, like trying to, and then you, you actually need to make some money because you got to pay for gas and hotel rooms and things. And you want to come home and, and rub some coin together too. So, well, exactly. So, you know, it's very um, untraditional the way you went about it, but also very natural. And, and I also think too, you know, after, you know, seeing you play and hearing you sing, I mean, you know, you've got the goods. So uh, that kind of boldness. I think you need it because you're you're the opposite of arrogance. But when when you take the stage, your confidence is just there. Your stories are great, your voice is great, your guitar playing is is, is amazing. And I could I could not do that at that time. I, I know that people hopping in the car and going to different places, or maybe just walking in a place and saying, "Give me a shot." That might be more common today, but in 1999 or or 2000 or 2001. A lot of people weren't, by and large, just hopping in their car and doing their own tours. So um, I, I think it's a little more common today for, you know, yeah, you know, we go out in our van and we go and tour and we're not on a label and we don't have a booking agent. We don't have a publicist, but we're doing our thing. Back then, I think that's really bold. And, and I admire that a lot. Well, you know, the Internet. Yeah, thanks. The Internet kind of changed things, right, because it made it possible to connect with people in a new way. And so what happened for me with the tattoo tour, to get more directly to your question, is that MySpace happened. Yes. And with MySpace, I suddenly realized, like, the people who liked my music or who had heard of me, they they would friend me on there and I had music up there. And I had been playing around tattoo shops in Chicago and in Los Angeles. I had a... Uh, a friend of mine named, named Gil Monty, who's a great, uh, interesting character, just a classic old biker tattoo guy who was uh, kind of a legendary guy, particularly in the 80s. He was okay. a very famous tattooer in, in Los Angeles. And so we became buddies, and he would have me play regularly at his shop. So I had known tattoo artists around the country because, you know, we were sort of in a similar milieu. I was a musician, and I always knew guys who were other types of artists and like that. And I thought to myself, you know what, what if I tried just connecting with some tattoo shops and just see, because these guys make, you know, pretty good bucks, particularly at that time, when I did the first tattoo tour was 2005 or 2006. And the thing is, at that point, it was at the peak of, uh, you know, like all the TV shows were coming out and tattoos were suddenly, you know, wasn't just... Uh, miscreants and uh, and artists and and, and you know sailors no, it wasn't and, the underbelly. And I mean, it was it got almost mainstream. You know, exactly. tattoo parlors. Um, our exactly. friend Kim Say. Do you know Kim Say? She had a Cherry Bomb in Chicago, and she worked for. Um, she dated my guitar player, my old band, and then she worked for Kat Von D. And we always knew she was a great. Tattoo artists were like, holy cow, this tattoo thing is getting massive. I mean, yeah. Really big. Yeah, yeah, so it did. And and as a result, there were just so many shops popping up everywhere. So I, I talked to some of my friends in the tattoo world, and they said, oh, you know, this guy's into your kind of music. And it turned out there was this whole kind of world of tattooers that were you know it makes sense that are into indie film like the kind of movies i was doing and we're into you know roots music and it's an interesting time in music around then too because you had like this popularity 
of Johnny Cash from the uh, American recordings. Yeah, when Ruben got involved, definitely, man, he had a whole it's, resurgence. Totally, and so there was there was suddenly this like roots music revival happening for punk old punk rockers were getting more into roots music, yeah, and and new and new young punk rockers too, and, and also R.L. Burnside to become popular with those people and Junior Kimbrough. Oh, black so the man, kind of, come on now, yeah. So the kind of music I was doing, which falls kind of in that realm of you know blues and country and and roots Americana music, as you know, that was popular with some of these kind of guys and so when I, I found out very quickly that people were willing to pay me to come play at their shops and they would throw a party or you know do it for their clients or sometimes people charged an admission but usually they didn't usually they just kind of threw a party and uh you know that's a couple of what, what i charge would be you know a couple three four hours of tattooing for one of them, you know what they would charge, and yeah. so it's, it seemed to, seemed to make sense. You know, they could afford it, and they made cash, and they liked to. Some of them liked to spend their money when they made it too. So it seemed like kind of a natural fit, and I just really liked the people. And the cool thing was that it was different than playing a bar because it was number one, it was all ages. People would be there with their family sometimes and their kids. Oh yeah. And uh, it was just a cool way to, to connect with people and to get to know them over time, too, where we become friends. And sometimes I'd stay at their house and get to know them, and, and they get to know me. And sometimes they'd be into meditation, too, which is another thing I do is teach meditation. So I found a lot of connections with those people, and it was, it was a cool fit. Well, I like that because, uh, you know, like traditionally, I mean, you're an original singer-songwriter, and you've put out at least eight or nine of your own albums and um, I would think that uh, going into a tattoo parlor, people going in there would be open to original music as like I think with the breweries, um, when we go and play breweries, a lot of people looking for, say, different kinds of beer might be open to different music that they haven't heard before. So do you find that that kind of was um, a, a way for you to get your music out as opposed to being in a bar where mostly everybody in a bar wants cover tunes? Yeah, well, it really depends on the type of venue <clears throat> because a lot of bars are exactly what you said. You know, people want to, they want to hear something they know. Yeah. And it's, especially, I think, when they start getting drunk, it's sort of like nostalgia kind of takes over. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It, you got to play like, Louie Louie, you got to play Zeppelin tune, you got to play, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're like, they're like going down a hole quick and they're like, throw me a rope. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, if you play your own songs long enough, eventually somebody says that your your song is Louie Louie for them, you know, and they do have a nostalgic connection with it, which is kind of funny. But I think you're right. What you said about the brewery, I think that's, you know, that's a that's an interesting uh, insight you had. And I, I thought about that, too, that, you know, people who want to try different things and new things and craft things and, uh, you know, which is also could be that way in the tattoo world that people have you know, the world of art and designs and um, and symbolism. Yeah. That people might be open to the, the symbolism and the language of, uh, of somebody's original art coming out in a musical form as well. Well, you know, I, I enjoy working and, you know, Terry and I live in Northwest Indiana and, and we're not trying to be famous. Uh, we do love to work and we've just found that we, we've, get, we've gotten a lot of work over the past couple of years. Obviously not right now, but, <laughs> you know, um, we like to get out and work and we can do it and develop our own 
little following of people who, like you said, you know, like we, we have a couple tunes that people will shout out, like play my Terry Ann or play this song or that song. And it's kind of neat to have that for our tunes as opposed to, again, you know, if we decided we're going to go and just play bars, I, I really don't think that would happen for us, like to make a living as the original singer songwriters. So it's, it's yeah. a really neat thing that I've observed from you that you did. And I got to ask you too, Jake, I mean, like, man, you, uh, you're like a Renaissance man, as far as like you, you can do anything. You, you can act, you can sing, you can write, um, and perform live theater. And, you know, I, I did not know this. Um, you, you're very humble when, when you play live, you, you really don't shout out too much of what you've done. Um, I do, so people always kind of hopefully come back and like, oh, you were you were in this movie, you're, you're in a song in that movie. Um, you're very humble about it, but you were in a musical called Ghost Brothers of Darkland County, and it was written by Stephen King and John Mellencamp, and, and you performed live in that musical. How did mm-hmm. that come about, that you got into live theater? Uh, the Well, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, I thought that I wanted to be an actor. I thought that, that doing theater was probably the most magical thing that a person could do. Yeah. And I, it was before, I didn't know I could be a musician. I didn't, I thought that would take some real special thing. I thought like anybody could probably do acting, but you know, like music was this other special <laughs> crazy thing. Gotcha. So okay. I thought I could do acting because somebody gave me a lead role in a play in, in grammar school playing uh, Oliver in the Oliver Twist uh, musical. More please. More. Yeah, exactly. More, more <laughs> gruel. <laughs> okay. So you played in Oliver. You were Oliver? I was Oliver, and and then I went around, you know, the the city, Chicago had a great theater scene, has a great theater scene, yes. and I, I just like rented a, uh, or not rented, I bought a, a, a secondhand suit at Salvation Army or Amvets or something, you know, and so that I could usher it at the theaters, so I could usher at all of those uh, those little uh, kind of off-Broadway style theaters yeah. and see plays for free and just be near it. I just wanted to be near it. And um, and then I did uh, some like park district theater, adult theater where they needed a kid. Um, and then I was a fine arts major at Lincoln Park High School. Uh, briefly, I dropped out after the first year, year and a half. Um, I was a drama major. Oh wow! So um, so I, I, that's where I was going. And then you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the punk rock scene, and and I dropped out, and I got into stupid stuff. And but then you know, fast forward. Um, Many years later, I was living in New Orleans, and I got an email from a woman who was a Broadway theater like casting director, and okay. uh, she was looking for somebody for for a musical of uh, of the songs of Randy Newman. Oh wow! And yeah, I guess she found me because she probably did a Google search like weird weirdo who lives in Nashville. <laughs> I don't know what, but somehow she found me. <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> or weirdo lives. Sorry, weirdo who lives in New Orleans. I was living in New Orleans at that time. Yeah, weirdo and, in New uh, Orleans. Jake Lobotz comes right up. <laughs> See <probably> Jake Lobotz. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this woman found me. I honestly don't. It was the weirdest thing. But she, 
she reached out and she said, hey, would you audition for this Randy Newman thing? So I went up to New York and I met with her and Randy Newman and some other people and I auditioned for the thing. But I'm not a musical theater guy. And the cat and the, the, the director of the play, this guy, Jerry Zachs, he's very old school Broadway. And he was like, yeah, yeah. That kid doesn't have the chops. He wasn't, you know, whatever. So, pass <laughs> grand kid, beat it. You bother me. <laughs> it, it was kind of like that, uh, you know. So I, so I went home. I'm like, I know I'm not a musical theater guy. So she, but that same woman called me about a year later, and she said, "Look, I got this other thing that you really are the right guy for. It's playing Satan in this thing <laughs> created." How did that make you feel? <laughs> You're the right guy for this. You're going to play Satan. <laughs> she said, you know, basically it's this hillbilly Satan character. And the music is just like your music. It's dark, but kind of funny. You know, the character is dark and and, and uh, funny in the way that you're that yeah, she thought my songs sardonic. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Your music and, I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess I saw that connection. Oh, okay, cool. I'll check it out. So I, I created this character and I, and I learned the song that they wanted me to learn. And I did this whole thing. And I went in to, to meet with uh, John Mellencamp and her and, and T-Bone Burnett, who's the musical supervisor. And I went in and did this audition. And, you know, I was pretty nervous, man. Sure, but man. I, huge people. I mean, T-Bone Burnett and Mellencamp. I mean, come on. That's, that's huge. So I'd be nervous, too. Yeah, and I walked in there, and Mellencamp looked like the most bored, grumpy guy you ever saw. He was like, of course he did. he's like, you know, he gave me this look like, who the fuck are you? Like, really? I, yeah, I, right. I don't, I don't want to see one more guy doing this. He just looks so tired of seeing people trying to pull off this this satanic character that Stephen King had written. And I went in there, and I just kind of was did this sort of freaky thing, and I, 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 I you know, what did you do? The, and, What's well, the, freaky the thing? character got to do something different. You know, you're looking at a guy who's obviously bored out of his gourd, and you come in, and it's like you, you got to do something different to get this grump's attention. So what, what well, did my, you do? My take, my take on the character that was that it was neither man nor woman. It was kind of both. It was kind of he was kind of feminine, but he was kind of masculine. Androgynous. And he was, okay. He was, but not exactly androgynous. He was very feminine in some ways and very masculine in some ways and very snake-like. Ooh. And moved moved like a snake and sang like, you know, very intensely, but also with a way that was was made you kind of like him you know there's something about the character that was likable yeah and uh and Satan wants know. friends I, so yeah <laughs> well yeah i mean i think for this character like he needed to be likable he was like the mc of the show and you you, okay. you wanted to and he made jokes and he was like made a very dark kind of humor so um Whatever it was, they liked it. And on the spot, you know, like T-Bone made this, said this thing right after the audition, which was, I think, out of uh, out of the producers or some Mel, Mel Brooks movie. He goes, I believe we found our Hitler. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because um, springtime for Hitler. Yes. Right. That's it. <laughs> so, I, so when I heard him say that, I knew I got the part. I also saw. Mellencamp laugh out loud at one point so so I, I knew I got the part and I wasn't yeah. totally sure but I got the call a week or two later and yeah it was it was cool it 
they, you know, we, we did a run in Atlanta and we toured it a little bit around the country and, you know, they were trying to get it in shape for Broadway. The investors never came along the way they thought they would. Um, okay. and the story, story needed some work and it wasn't quite getting there. And Stephen King kind of gave up on it after a while. Mellencamp did not want to give up on it. It was really his baby. He wanted to be known as a, as a, as a theater guy too, you know, to have that under his belt. Yeah, playwright, sure. Yeah, I could see that with him because he's made a couple of films. And um, one of them he starred in, and I think he did a good job acting in it. I can't think of the name of the movie. But um, it was in the early 2000s he came out with a film, and, and it was really good. But um, Terry thinks the same thing about Mellencamp. Like she ne- that's one of her idols, and um, she's never wanted to meet him because she thinks that he would be mean. <laughs> <laughs> he can be. He can definitely be a real jerk, but I'll tell you what, he's also, uh, of course, a very intelligent guy, and, oh, yeah. and he can be a, a very charismatic guy, and very, a very, very funny guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I haven't met him, but I mean, you can hear that in some of his songs, and uh, you know, we've seen him live, and yeah, he's definitely very outspoken, and, and does have a, a sense of humor, and knows how to use it to, to sting or to make you laugh. <laughs> Yeah, but usually there is a sting in there for somebody. For someone, yeah. Well, Jake, I got to tell you, you're a, a very humble human being to be uh, asked to portray Satan. And then I think we found our Hitler. I mean, like that, you, you're really, uh, you know, a, a humble dude to be like, okay, this means they like me. Okay, good. <laughs> be like, wow, that's fantastic. Um, We saw a, a movie that you starred in, and um, it's called The Grace of Jake. And we bought the film. We absolutely thought that you were fantastic in it. Um, I kind of thought, just knowing uh, uh, about you know some of your history in in your life, uh, were were there any truths in that film, The Grace of Jake? I mean, you know, basically, uh, you leave California to go back to Arkansas, and you you've had a troubled past, and uh, you're looking to just take out your your father, who you basically blame for some of your trouble um not that you've ever thought about doing that but uh there was i I just saw i mean it was just so believable and that that's the thing that i love about your acting is uh it it was so believable and we're so blown away by it um did some of your past struggles help you with that role yeah for sure um the guy who directed it chris hickey who uh was a friend of mine he moved to los angeles from Arkansas. He was probably in his early 20s when I met him. He came out to one of my gigs. And like a lot of young people who come to Los Angeles, he had ideas about kind of making it in showbiz. And and he put his arm around me one night. He was a little buzz. And he said, you know, I'm going to make it, man. I'm going to take you with me. Right. Okay. And and I thought, okay, nice kid. You know, welcome to Los Angeles. Good luck. (laughs) Good luck, kid. Now scram. You bother me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was a really beautiful, he is a really beautiful guy. And he, at that time, I was playing in a uh, church in South Central Los Angeles, in a black church. I played guitar there for a couple of years. Wow. um, The Greater Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. And Hickey was, uh, he was volunteering at the Boys Club in Watts or somewhere, not too far away from, from where the church was. Yeah. And so he would come by and check me out over there sometimes. And then he uh, he was like, I want to make a documentary about this. And so he started coming there with a camera. 
and uh, we filmed some other things. And and then he was like, you know, I don't really want to do a documentary, but I like this story of a guy who's a white guy who ends up playing in a black church. And so he wrote this redemptive story, The Grace of Jake, and he had me in mind to, to play the lead, I, I think. Even in we the did title. I mean, you know, the title. I mean, you're Jake. So Yeah, 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 right. So he based it a little on my life, right? And then he added in all these other things, like the heroin part and the church part were from my life. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, you know, then he incorporated things from his own life in Arkansas and other things. And, and then, you know, we, he wrote the script and I didn't hear from him for a long time. For years, actually, I'd moved and, you know, we'd, he was doing different things as far as I knew. Years later, I get a call from him. I was living in upstate New York, and he said, hey, you know, you remember that script? Well, I was cobbling at it for years, and I had Justin Timberlake attached at one time to play your part. And, you know, we were trying to get it made the Hollywood way, and it didn't happen. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to make it on my own dime or a Kickstarter or whatever we got to do. But we're going to do it. We're going to shoot it in Arkansas. And if you would still like to do the role, uh, we'd like to have you do it. And so we, we went back to Arkansas, and I reread the script, and it was he had really improved it. And so a lot of those things are not directly from my life, but the heroin part and the church part are, and of course the feelings and the emotional you know stuff that comes through, I suppose. Well, and, and also playing in a black church too. I mean, it's it's really amazing to see you know how you can can adapt and do all these different kinds of things and. You know, for me, it's always believability. And when we saw The Grace of Jake, it was just after we had uh, played with you and absconded with your money. Uh, we, we came home, we, which I got to explain that, too. And I know it, it's all good. But we were packing up our car to go because we talked to you a little bit after we are done playing. A bunch of people were coming up and uh, buying albums and all that kind of stuff. And so I told Terry we were driving back home to Crown Point. We had six shows in a row. And uh, the guy comes out and he goes, hey, man, here's here's your money. We're like, OK, we'll see you later. So I don't know why we got paid. And then we're driving. And a couple hours later, we, we get a phone call like, oh, dude, that's Jake's money. Like, well, OK, so now yeah, we're left was, with your money. So that whole thing was so bizarre. I, we should have just t- told you that that was your money and just let it be. I mean, it was 50 bucks. It was like it was like a, a it was a non you know, it was, it was so the money was so low. Just a background for your audience. We played a gig together in Detroit. Yes. And uh, the there just was no money in the gig. The whole gig altogether was the the whole pot was fifty bucks. And they they were they had said that it was for the um, the second act for the headlining act or whatever, which was us. And uh, so when we went to get paid. They said, "Oh, well, we already paid the other band. Uh, there's no money." And what, what the heck? We, you know, and then the the owner got upset. He's like, "You better call them." And he, anyway, so yeah, that, PJ that's what from it was. PJ's Logger House. PJ was was upset, and yeah, we got a phone call. And you know, uh, we were the second act because there was a guy from Detroit that played with us too, and his name escapes me right now. But a good singer songwriter that we played with there before, so he played, and then we played. And then you played, and you know there wasn't a, a ton of people, but there was. Def- you were the headliner, and and Craig Brown, who booked me, knew that you were the headliner, and I was the opener. So I don't know why I was handed money 
as we were leaving. We were in our car. Like, we were in our car, our van, heading back home to Crown Point from Detroit. We did just done six in a row. So we got paid and left, and then I got a phone call. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, Jake's going to hate us. Like oh, no, I, I, I thought it was one of those perfect, funny situations where it's just like, I mean, what are you going to do? You're, you're, it, it's like this so many times. In, and with music, you never know what you're going to walk into. You never know if you're going to get paid or not, anything. No. And, I mean, like, anything could happen. And especially in Detroit, you feel like anything could happen. Yes, no doubt about it. Well, we've never gotten paid. We've played PJs a number of times, and, like, we've never gotten paid. So we're like, hey, we're getting paid from PJ's Logger House. Yes, let's get going. Well, you you should have gotten paid. You should have gotten paid. In fact, I, I wish I had. I wish we hadn't have taken the money back from you. We should, we should just let you keep it. Nah, you're on the road and you're doing your thing and, and we wouldn't think anything else other than to get you your money back so we we hitch up on PayPal like right away. We're like, oh man this is just ridiculous. Oh yeah, you did. You called me right away. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think anything of it. To me it wasn't, it wasn't a problem at all. Well, we appreciate it and it was really cool to play a show with you because um, after we saw you at Lagunitas in Chicago, then we started following your career and picking up your CDs and your records and all that kind of stuff. And I know we talked on the way out of, uh, of Lagunitas and uh, it was just really cool to, to know that we, we met previously, um, you know, you hung out with a band that um, I was friends with and uh, I, were you in the band mustache with some of the guys from wicker man <laughs> no but i lived with some of those guys there was, was uh, it phil uh, or aj or who'd you live with no i live with matt to it oh matt okay sure yeah okay yeah matt and i uh we shared a, he let me crash at his crash pad i should say for a while that was on milwaukee avenue um and uh yeah so we were we were good buddies and i hung out with those guys i got to know the, those guys through matt Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I was in a, a rock band called Loudmouth from Chicago, and we shared the same manager, uh, an unreputable manager, but we shared the same manager. We just got to be friends with those guys. And um, I, I wanted to say that I think that uh, we went to New York, and I think you were with the band. I think you were with the Wicker Man guys. We went to New York and played with the Meat Men. And Oh, yeah, I was on that tour. Yes, I thought you were on that tour. And uh, it was... Um, I was a roadie. You were roadieing for Wicker Man. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I thought... Now, I remember you now. I'm, I'm great with, with faces and all that kind of stuff. And when we were talking, I'm like, I totally remember that. The club was uh, under Acme, and we opened for uh, the Meat Men. It, it was Loudmouth, Wicker Man, and the Meat Men. So um, I remember meeting you there i remember seeing you and it, it came back to me i'm like holy crap that that was just oh, like a full funny. circle moment it, it was really funny it was really funny i, I don't know if i ever saw I, I don't know um if i was around for the show but i, I feel like I, I remember the name loudmouth from around chicago though yeah we did pretty well um you know we we got signed and did the whole thing but um it was it was kind of strange how it happened we'd been clubbing it forever like everybody else and um metallica came out to see us at the double door and they became fans of our band so it was like oh yeah i remember when those guys were hovering around they were in town for like a month they were always over at uh dreamers down the street sure yeah yeah they hung or, out in uh, chicago for a while yeah they were like everywhere you went axel rose was there it was really bizarre yeah, because um, Guns N' Roses were rehearsing at the Metro upstairs. There's like a upstairs like 
private little theater up there. I'm sure yeah, you've yeah, yeah. been there and seen it. Um, but yeah, uh, Guns N' Roses was hanging there, and they were talking about doing the Guns N' Roses Metallica tour. So they were all in Chicago hanging out. And oh right, I'm thinking of Guns N' Roses. Right, you said Metallica. Sorry, I, I, I completely went off on a different tangent. Well, Metallica was in town for a while too, and that's how they got to see us. They came out I to see. see my old group, and it was just kind of mayhem after they they talked about us in magazines and all that kind of thing. So it was kind of nuts. Oh, that's awesome, man! It it was cool. It's definitely cool. They were very nice guys and very helpful to have their stamp of approval, which you know is, is great. But yeah, that was all through uh, us playing in Chicago with uh, the Wicker Man guys, and then uh, getting a, a manager who was you know getting us gigs and you know and and getting us booked and getting our name out there. So it was definitely a, a, a strange full circle moment to know that I, I did meet you and it was in New York. It was there. It was at the under Acme club. So, well, you know, the, I jumped off that tour right at that point because, uh, you know, I was a heroin addict and, and, and the reason I went on with them to, to roadie for them was because I was trying to get away from dope. So sure. I left there dope sick. We drove straight to McAllen, Texas to start that tour with Guar and the Meat Man. And uh, I remember it was like an 18-hour drive straight through. And I'm like, I'm like Jones in. And I'm like, oh, fuck, man. And then everywhere we went, of course, I was trying to find heroin. But, you know, you don't find heroin at metal shows. You probably find no. some really nasty crank. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> you get crank at metal shows. Yeah, you don't get uh, black tar heroin. That's for sure. <laughs> when we got to New York, I was like, you know what? I know where to find dope in this town. And that's when I got out of there and, and <laughs> went to do my own thing. Gotcha. Well, I'll tell you what, Jake. I have a little segment here that I'd love to do with you on the Fedhead show here. And it's called Rapid Fire Favorites. With Jake Labatz. <laughs> we, we do all our music live here on the show, Jake. <laughs> Sweet. So um, I wanted to ask you uh, just a couple different things. This is just a little fun segment that I do. And uh, it doesn't have to be fast. I just call it Rapid Fire Favorites with Jake Labatz. Um, you've been in... A number of movies. Um, you know, I, I know that you said live that you were in Rambo. And, um, you know, of course, we went and watched that. But you've been in a number of movies. And I'm wondering, uh, what is the favorite film that you've ever been in? Grace and Jake. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we the thing is, shooting indie film is so fun because you, you're, you're mixing with, with, you know, people all the time. And a lot of times you're using locals and have local people as actors and i don't know it's a tighter crew you get to know people better i I just had so much fun in that town forest city arkansas was just it was just a cool place i got to i felt like i got to meet everybody in that town so fun and for our listeners out there the grace of jake is an excellent film and you can get it on amazon right now amazon prime uh video like you can just stream it from there and uh we bought the movie and it was just fantastic i after we watched the film, I texted you and said, we just bought the movie and we watched it and I've watched it like three times since and it was fantastic. So that's... Wow, I really appreciate that. Thanks, you guys. Mm-hmm. No problem. No problem. Okay, so what is... I know you're very bluesy and I know that some local uh, Chicago blues legends, uh, I know that like they, they taught you some guitar and, and you hung out with them and jammed with them and played with them. What's your favorite blues recording? Wow. 
These Jeez, are not going to be easy, Jake. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, okay. Someone well, has to ask the what, hard what, questions. What really turned me on when I first started getting into blues, it was just one person playing and singing. So it was just very stark. One person's emotions. And the stuff that was really otherworldly was the stuff that stuff that captured my mind. And there was a few artists that were incredibly otherworldly sounding to me. And one wow. of them is Skip James. Okay, Skip James. Yes. Okay. He sings in this high falsetto voice and this and like beyond melancholy. I mean, it is like he. This guy was so dark that he could not make a living as a blues singer. I mean, his his music was just so sad. It was so, so sad that he could not make a living as a blues singer. Think about that. I mean, yeah, because you're singing the blues, but he's singing it from such a deep, dark place that people just can't, that he can't get hired. Wow. It's like people get too depressed, I think. But, I mean, he somehow he managed to keep it together. He was a bootlegger and he did other things and, you know. But, uh, but yeah, Skip James and, and Blind Willie Johnson was another guy, just really otherworldly sounding to me. It just sound like he was from another planet. Wow. Yeah, I, I love when you have moments like that where you hear artists that just transport you to another place. Um, it doesn't surprise me that that influences you. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell you straight from the heart, you're one of those musicians that you go and hear you play and Terry and I, we've you know been in music forever and we've seen a million artists. Uh, you're one of those artists that mesmerizes like that. Your stories and song, your banter in between, um, you definitely come from a, a deeper place and, and we love that. So that does not surprise me. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. You are welcome. And you've played a, a ton of different places. So another rapid fire favorite question is what is your favorite musical venue like that, that you've ever performed in um, or still perform in, but what's your favorite musical venue? Holy moly. There's so many. I, I know mine right <laughs> off the bat, and I'll tell you my favorite is the Metro. That's my favorite. Metro in Chicago is my favorite musical venue, and I, you know, I've played everywhere from CBGB in New York to the Viper Room and the Whiskey and all that kind of stuff. Um, my favorite musical venue is the Metro in Chicago. And I just, I always want, I always wonder because I mean, you know, artists like you and, and myself, we play all kinds of different places and, and, you know, you definitely have a, a bigger, uh, repertoire of places that you play. So I'm just wondering if, man, I, I, it's kind of hard to, to pull something into my my. I, the first thing that came to my mind was the Paradiso in Amsterdam is a is a pretty cool venue. Okay. Um, but I, I feel like every place has something unique, you know, and something particular. And then there's the time and the place too. So it's it's who shows up and what's actually happening in that particular time. I think I feel like every single place, even if I don't like the the sound system and even if i feel like the people who are working there are very friendly or the food isn't good or whatever it is yeah there's always something unique and interesting i remember i was playing at a bunker in germany and, and uh <laughs> wow. it was like you're, you're playing in an old army bunker and you're thinking okay this was used by the nazis you know like yeah, th right? there were people hiding out in here trying not to get killed by bombs in, in 1940 five or something right yeah and i i sat there and i did some meditation practice and i just thought about all the pain and suffering that went on in that place all the souls and that it, were in that place yeah 
you know i mean a place like that it's so powerful to to come back with an open heart and with bringing art to that space and uh bringing you know something for people to share in together it's really powerful so that I think is. about that like every place you go there's there's a possibility for opening a connection that's never happened before man that is such a beautiful perspective on playing and I've always, you know, talked to Terry about, you know, every gig's important. And, um, you know, we, we both have agreed on that for a long time because that connection that you make with people, that's absolutely wonderful that you have that perspective because I believe that too. And, um, to play in a bunker that was, you know, used to, you know, for people to hide from bombs and then to be playing your music, like what, uh, what an opposite world. I mean, like, that's a polar opposite of why people used to be there and why they're there now. So, yeah, super cool. Yeah, really. Super cool. Well, you've you've spent a lot of time in Chicago. And uh, Terry Ann and I, we've lived all over Chicago. And uh, I'm from the south side of Chicago originally. And uh, we loved all kinds of different places that we would go to eat. And one of our favorite places was a place called the Twisted Lizard on Sheffield and Armitage. It was like kind of, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't expensive. And it was just like a nice little place that you had to go downstairs and then turn left and then go into this place. So it wasn't highly advertised, but always full. Um, What was your favorite restaurant in Chicago that you would uh, go to? Oh, man. Uh, man. You know, I mean, Chicago just has some of the best food in the world. In the world, yes. Mm-hmm. I can't it's just one of those. It's just one of those places. It's just a notch above. Uh, and, you know, you, and you think, oh, this just must be how it is. If you grow up in a place like that, you might take it for granted. You go to somewhere like New York, and, you know, there, there's good restaurants in New York. You can find incredible food. But it's but, not like there's just this kind of across-the-board great food that you can find anywhere. You know, yeah. like there's like like Mexican food, like the, some of the best Mexican food you'll ever have is in Chicago. Best, some of the best Thai food you'll ever have, the best mm-hmm. Indian food. There's a Pakistani place uh, I used to like to go to on uh, Devon. I can't remember what it's called now, but um, that was one of my favorite places to go. Okay, it was like in, in delicious and really cheap. Um, I would always order way too much food for like $8. I did like six mm. plates of food or something crazy. Yeah, like, like uh, that's amazing. You know, eight bucks and you get like fed for two days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like, they're big on quantity in Chicago too. Yeah, That's for sure. City of big shoulders. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I can't think of a, oh, a particular place uh, that, that comes to mind. Okay. Ours was the Twisted Lizard. That was our that was our joint. We we went there for any and every occasion. And um, Seth Meyer from the Seth Meyer Show on uh, NBC. He's on after Jimmy Fallon. Uh, he was our waiter there. He he waited there for for years. Oh and, wow! And that's how he put himself through college. Was waiting uh, tables at uh, the Twisted Lizard. And um, oh, that's cool. When we saw him on Saturday Night Live, we're like. That's the waiter from from the Twisted Lizard. Like, wow. Um, well, listen. I know what you mean. I, I felt the same way when I saw Green Day on David Letterman. You know, I went to school with those guys. I went to school with them briefly in uh, Contra Costa County, California, in the in, in the East Bay. And I had a writing class with the drummer Frank. I went to see those kids play at a high school 
in Petaluma. I was 21. I think they were 17 or 18. And I remember like buying those guys booze because they, you know, they couldn't buy booze. Because they couldn't buy booze. Wow. And I thought, you know, they I, they were like, hey, what'd you think of the show? And I said, uh, you know, I, I guess I thought it sounded too much like the Buzzcocks or I don't know, like one of those 70s bands, Stiff Little Fingers or something. I thought it sounded like a little too much like that kind of music it didn't sound that original to me but i liked it it was kind of melodic you know and poppy yeah and then they were on david letterman i thought oh my god it must be a different band and then they came out it was them blew my mind and they really they really made something uh you know they really kind of went on to to do quite a bit yeah they did i i got to meet those guys when i was making a record in california they were in uh ocean way at the same time that my band was in ocean way and um a guy who was uh one of the heads of the label rob cavallo uh he was producing them and uh we got to meet those guys they came into the studio with us and and we hung out with them a little bit and they were really uh just nice normal dudes which yeah i always love that because um i i always feel like you know you should just be the same person and they were just like super cool and uh you know had some success at the time that i met them but didn't have any any of the ego trappings that go along with it so i mean you know in music you meet so many different people and i just hate when i meet pricks (laughs) it's just i know it's tough but um and i'll tell you what man that frank the drummer was also a good writer He, he was like the the best writer in that creative writing class he wrote a story about uh about going in for an STD test. <laughs> and it was great. It was like really great. It was like the best thing I heard in that class. Oh, that's amazing. Um, you know, I mean, for, uh, you know, like power, pop, punk, they they do really write good melodic songs. Um, when they come on the radio, I haven't bought any records, but when they do come on the radio or I hear them, I'm always like, yeah, they, this is some good stuff. This is some some decent music. I'm a sucker for melody, and I'm a huge Beatle fan. And I just if if there's melody in it, I'm I'm pretty much you know hooked. If it's something that I'm going to start singing right away, so I, I know me too. I kind of love that and hate it because then there it is stuck in your mind. It's an earworm, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Jake. I want to say thank you so much. Uh, for calling in and for well for letting us call you and for being on the show here and I've got one more question for you and uh, a lot of this question is for our listeners um, out there and it's what is it's a hard question but I gotta ask you mm-hmm. what's your favorite Jake Labatt's record what what's your favorite album that you've recorded uh, probably the last one okay They're coming for me yeah, I feel like we, we were starting to move into a little bit of, uh, like, like the one before that, I think, is a very good album, too. Uh, I like both of them, actually. Sunnyside is great. Yeah. It, yeah. I, yeah, Sunnyside, I think it's also a really good one. You know, I, it's between those two, but maybe the, the newest one, just because I think we're starting to move out of the lo-fi territory a little bit more. And, uh, you know, we're, I don't know, trying to make it just a little bit, uh, more high, hi-fi, <laughs> a little bit more ready for prime time in a way or something, just yeah. uh, sound sound wise. But um, but I think that those records I made with Jimmy were great. Jimmy Sutton was the producer, and, and he's uh, he really brought something in, and it was it was really helpful for me working with him. 
Yeah, he's a great musician and a great producer. And, and I'm going to uh, agree with you that they're coming for me. It, it's my favorite Jake Labatt's record, too. And um, you go to so many different places. I love when there is, you know, running either towards God or away from God. I love when there's humor in it. Um, like the big, hey, Bigfoot, like that's just hilarious. Bigfoot wants to get some some more publicity and recognition because people are kind of forgetting about Bigfoot with, you know, um, all the streaming things going on and, and everything. So like that, and the, the music's great on that. But um, two songs that really stand out to me, being a singer-songwriter, is uh, the one is Without the Weight. And um, the hardest thing I, I think about being a performer is like when you believe what you're singing and you're putting it out there, there's a lot of weight to that that you carry on your shoulders. And sometimes just singing like a Beatle tune or just singing like, uh, you know, something uh, fun that everybody knows, you know, um, is nice because you're not carrying the weight of that. And I just wanted to ask you about that song. What? What inspired you for the song Without the Weight? Yeah, thanks for asking. And, and also, I appreciate um, what you said. And, uh, and it means a lot coming from a fellow musician and songwriter. And uh, that that song, uh, and you, you're going to understand that in a way different maybe from other people, too, that, you know, that that the weight of, uh, you know, that you can, you can just kind of let go and sing without, you know, it's like a... That that kind of points to like a time when just trying things out was okay, you know, before it got to be like this heaviness to it, which yeah. can really happen when it's like your it's your career and you know there's all this writing on it and you better write a good song. And that song, I was just kind of having fun. I mean, it was it was the the last song I wrote for the album. Uh, I wrote it in the studio at night because I didn't have enough songs, and so. We'd finish recording the day, and at night I would work on that song. And I, I was mining through garage band tracks, and I was mining through old lyrics. And there was this one line in some song I'd written that I'd thrown away, but I'd saved some of the words. And it was naming pretty girls that we thought we knew and naming dirty towns that we stumbled through. Yes. And, and then I'm like, okay, that would be great in a chorus. And then I just came up with this melody, and somehow the the story kind of unfolded a little bit. Um, so it came it came together rather quickly, and um, and I didn't have a lot of uh, uh, thought behind it. But I think the, what came out was that there was a kind of a playfulness. Um, I felt like a little elf at night, like cobbling away on the shoes or something, or yeah. whatever that. I'm going to go work on this magic is. song over here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Boy, Jake, it's a brilliant tune, and it really um, affects me when when I listen to that. And um, you know, talking with Terry during COVID, like, remember this town we played? And actually mentioning New Boston to you earlier in the interview here, um, like naming you know dirty towns that we stumbled through. Like that is just it just hit me like right away. Just awesome. Um, I gotta ask you one more uh, question about they're coming for me that record, and it's Bank Robbers Lament which is just, it's absolutely an incredible, incredible song. And is there, is, is, is the, the bank robber, is he, is, is there asking like for forgiveness in there? Is there, um, what, what's going on through the bank robber's mind in that? I mean, he, he thought about Jesus the whole time, 
when he's doing this and doing that, and then he thinks about Jesus, and he's still trying to work on a building. Um, there's a lot of heaviness to that, and and that's another song that really affected me. Yeah, thanks, man. Well, I, I think for me, what that song points at, and you know, sometimes I write a song and I don't quite know until after I listen to it myself a while, like what it's getting at. But one thing I think it gets at is that we're we all are kind of set up for these habitual things in life that, you know, these kind of addictions and things that we get into based on, you know, things we went through in childhood, a lot of it, you know, through certain traumatic situations or uh, the way, you know, we weren't able to kind of be become ourselves because we, you know, we're just trying to basically survive and fit in in whatever weird situation we were in. Yeah. And, And I think they're all kind of weird situations, no matter, no matter how great our parents were. So, you know, I think about somebody like I took it to kind of an extreme. Here's somebody who's involved in something that's a harmful practice. You know, they're they're yeah. involved in, in in something that's really dangerous and it's you know it's you know harmful to other people. And um, at the same time, it's it's usually or it could be a less violent crime than some some of them. You know, but it's it's still it has this kind of weightiness to it, right? So here's a guy who's been doing this a while. And he can't quite stop his trajectory. It's like it's like if you're addicted to, to something, you can't quite stop your tra- trajectory. If you have a habitual way of doing something. And you're going to keep you doing it. You're going to kind of keep doing it. And like what we do in meditation practice is we don't necessarily, I mean, we can't always just stop. I mean, sometimes you can just kind of stop. You know, I eventually was able to stop heroin, but it took me a long time of trying out a lot of things and, you know, I wasn't able to just do it overnight. I went through a lot of rehabs and a lot of arrests and a lot of overdoses and a lot of crazy shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I could, you know, I couldn't just just stop. But it, it, over a period of time, something was shifting. I was my energy was shifting towards starting to trust other people, starting to ask for help, starting to get some help, starting to receive it, starting to learn a new way to live. And it was all happening kind of slowly. And I think this guy, he, we, we use the kind of Christian uh, dichotomy or the, the Christian sort of metaphor for uh, for his spiritual connection, which is that he feels a connection with this great teacher, Jesus, who is this loving person. And, you know, of course, there's this old classic um, gospel song called I've Been Working on a Building. Yes. And I, okay. I love that metaphor that there, there's this idea that you know you're working on the building it's not that you've completed the building but you're working on it even if you're a bank robber you could be working on it yeah and so it's so it's saying you know you can judge anybody you want but no matter what the thing is they're doing in their life if they find a way to start connecting with something you know to maybe they're working on a building and it's just kind of slow going and for this guy he starts, he actually realizes that at the end, like for him, it took this big drastic thing. It turned, it took getting shot to stop his, his directionality with this habitual thing. The only thing that could stop it was a bullet because he, the building was just taking too long, you know? Yeah. Right. But like, but he, the bullet stopped it. But right in that moment, he was free. And that was it. He, he was free after the bullet. And yeah, the, the bullet stopped him and he was free. And I and I think that that was kind of the message is that it, sometimes it takes something really, really heavy to stop whatever our directionality is. You know, near-death experience, a heavy addiction, someone else dying that's close to us, COVID-19, you know, could be a lot of things. 
definitely. That is uh, absolutely a, a brilliant song and, and a great explanation. Um, I love that tune. And uh, Terry Ann and I, dude, we love you. We love your music. And we just want to thank you so much for uh, being a part of our lives. And uh, we're definitely going to come and visit you uh, in either Winona or in Fountain City, one of these magical places. We're going to definitely get a hold of you, and uh, maybe we can grab a cup of coffee or some dinner and, and uh, hang out because we would love nothing more than to come see you again uh, when it's safe, of course, and all that, and uh, just just see you again and talk and have a nice time together. I would love that. I'm happy to know you both. I'm happy to know that you're going to be coming close. And, uh, yeah, it's been great to get to know you a little bit at these gigs and to hear you play and to, uh, to know that you're doing these interesting things like your podcast and your radio show and your, you know, your music and everything. So looking forward to seeing you up here. Well, thanks so much, Jake. We appreciate it. And we'll talk to you real soon. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, my friend. Bye-bye.